everybody. Um, so Matt asked me a little while back if I wanted to speak again. Um, and I said, well, it went okay last time, so sure, why not? Um, and he said, okay, well, we're doing Proverbs, so just pick your favorite and run with it. Now, this left open, of course, a world of possibilities. There's Proverbs 26:11, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Um, this one seemed especially fitting recently because earlier this week, I woke up to find that my five-month-old puppy had vomited an entire sock up onto my bed in the night. This was the latest in a string of four socks, at least four that we know of, that she had swallowed and then thrown up whole. And yet I, the fool returning to his folly, continued to leave my socks out in places where she could find them. I also gave a little bit of thought to Proverbs 27:14. This one is a real gem of wisdom, especially for people who are living with roommates. It says this, If a man loudly blesses his neighbor in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Yes, that's right. Solomon was not a morning person. If you've got something to say before about 10 a.m., he tells us, you should probably say it quietly. But seriously, I was having a hard time deciding. There are a lot of good Proverbs and a lot of strange Proverbs, and I wasn't sure what I should go with. But then while I was at home a few weeks ago, going through old things in my room, packing up boxes before getting married and moving in with Lauren, um, I came across a set of old sticky notes. These were little bits and pieces of Bible verses and thoughts from some youth group Bible study a long time ago. Out of these sticky notes, there jumped at me this one verse, Proverbs 16.3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. That's really interesting, I thought, because normally we tend to look at it the other way around. You get your thoughts straight first, you get your mindset, your beliefs all in order, and then you're ready to act. It makes me think of something I heard once from a middle school principal, and most of you have probably seen this on a poster in a classroom or heard it from a teacher at some point. It's a little quote that goes like this. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. See, we all kind of know instinctively that there's a relationship between what we think and what we do, between our works on the one hand and our thoughts on the other. Think kind thoughts, and you'll probably end up doing kind things. Think angry thoughts, and you'll probably find yourself doing angry things. Works and thoughts are connected. It is organic, like roots and leaves and fruit, all part of the same tree. But which comes first? What's the root and what's the fruit in this analogy? I think that most of the time we tend to side with my middle school principle. It starts with your thoughts. And to some extent that is probably true, but I think that the ancient Hebrews, the people from whom whom these Proverbs came, had a more nuanced view of this relationship. You see, after I found this verse on a sticky note, I went to look it up. But I was disappointed to find that in my Bible the translation was a little bit different. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will all succeed. That's not really the same thing, is it? In the one translation, we have a picture of someone committing what they do to God and then getting their thoughts and their beliefs straightened out and clarified. In the other, we have a picture of someone committing what they do to God, sort of in hopes that he'll make it work out the way that they want it to because they put his name on it. And honestly, that second picture wasn't something I felt like I could speak about. 
because haven't we all known people whose whole lives have been committed to God who, for whatever reason, seem to find all their best laid plans going horribly, horribly wrong? I think that, like Matt said, all these proverbs are principles and not promises. Great alliteration, by the way. Uh, but still, I, I didn't want to speak about that picture. So I emailed Matt, um, which is a good thing to do if you're ever confused about something. Uh, I gave him the verse as I first found it on that sticky note. And then I gave him the verse the way my Bible had it translated. And Matt, being the educated man that he is, went and did a little digging for me and came back with this answer. The first version of the verse, commit your works and your thoughts will be established, was actually a more accurate translation of the original Hebrew. The translation in my Bible about all your plans succeeding may have been technically correct, but it didn't really capture the sense of the words the way the Hebrews would have used them. See, the Hebrews had a very interesting understanding of what it meant to be a human being. For them, mind and body, heart and soul were all part of one incredibly complicated, glorious unity. Unlike us, the Hebrews wouldn't have gotten into arguments over whether the soul could exist without the body, or whether the mind and the brain were really the same thing, or whether the body was good or bad or more or less important than the mind. For them, these things were all parts, but they weren't separate. They were a whole. We see this idea echoed throughout Scripture, not least in the first command that Moses gave to the Israelites, the command that Jews throughout the centuries have recited in prayers, and the command that Jesus told his followers was the greatest one of all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Because loving God with all of these things is what it looks like to love God as one full human being. To be one full person created in the image of a God who in himself is one. And this idea, this unity and connection between body, mind, heart, and soul spilled over into the way the Hebrews envisioned the connection between our works and our thoughts. Our works and our thoughts are not totally separate. They're different, but they are part of a whole. You can't mark one as the root and one as the leaves, or if you do, you have to remember that while the leaves draw water and soil from the roots, the roots draw sunlight and chlorophyll from the leaves. They exist together. They influence each other. They are one tree. So what does this mean for us and for the proverb at hand? Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Let's think about that and let's pray. Father God, our prayer is that you would be with us this morning. That you would unfold in us some of the wisdom that has been passed down to us in these Proverbs. Be with us now, speak through me, and let us hear what you want us to hear. Thank you for your love. Amen. Abraham heard a voice. Not voice says, just a voice. Leave your home, it said. Leave your family and your father's house and everything you know and come to a place you've never seen, maybe never even heard of. This is all the introduction to Abraham that we get in the book of Genesis. There is no backstory, no explanation, just this voice calling him into the unknown. What we do know about Abraham from historical scholars and from the rest of Genesis is that at the time that he heard this voice, he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now this place, Ur, was the cradle of civilization. This was a city of the Sumerians, the people who created the little cuneiform blocky alphabet, the people who gave us the oldest literature in the world, the people who wrote the epic of Gilgamesh. 
This was the biggest city in the world in the second millennium BC. It was the Rome, the Babylon, the New York of its day. And it was pagan. This we know for sure, for sure from literature, but also from archaeology. The people of Ur built the ziggurats, those big pyramid-like stair-step temples that ascended into heaven. And it was in this context that Abraham first heard that voice. His people were very familiar with the idea of gods, but for them, gods were capricious deities, beings you could control if you made the right sacrifices and did the right things. Gods for the ancient Sumerians did not call you to move your whole family, and they did not make promises like the one Abraham heard from the voice. I will make you into a great nation, the voice said, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I shall curse, and all families on earth will be blessed through you. Outlandish. Hard to believe that all the scattered people of the world will be blessed through this one man and his offspring. It would have been easy, I think, to ignore this voice, to write it off as a delusion, and to stay put, to stay safe. But we all know how the rest of the story goes. Abraham does leave the city of Ur, and he travels to Canaan, the land that one day becomes the home of the people of Israel. And along the way, the voice is faithful, and more surprises emerge. Abraham's barren wife, Sarah, has a son. Neither of them can believe it when the voice tells them about this. In fact, Sarah laughs at it, and because of this, they name the child Isaac, meaning laughter. Abraham loves his son Isaac. But when the voice tells Abraham to kill his son as a sacrifice, Abraham obeys right up to the point where the voice, who by this time Abraham is beginning to understand is a very different kind of God than the ones he had grown up with, this voice sends an angel to hold back Abraham's hand to stop the knife from piercing the boy's chest. And whether that whole episode was about testing Abraham or about foreshadowing the sacrifice of a different son or about showing that this God, unlike the Sumerian gods, did not approve of child sacrifice, whatever it may have been about, Abraham walked away from that mountain altar knowing that this God was big and that this God was faithful and this God, in some strange way, had something to do with love. We look at Abraham today as the founder of the three great monotheistic religions of the world. Jews, Muslims, and Christians the world over revere him. In Jesus' day, when people talked about going to heaven, they talked about it as going to the bosom of Abraham. When they wanted to identify which God was theirs, they would call him the God of Abraham. That is how central this man was to what God had been doing in their world. Here's the crazy thing. We look at Abraham and we see this giant of the faith, this man who is so much closer to God than any of us could ever hope to be, and yet when it comes down to it, Abraham knew next to nothing about God. He didn't have a Bible to look at because he's in the first chapters. He didn't have a church to go to. He didn't have books of systematic theology, and he didn't have Jesus. As far as we know, all that God let Abraham in on was what we see in the book of Genesis. Vague promises of something far, far down the road. It could be that it was only in the Isaac sacrifice episode that Abraham finally began to understand a little of this God's true nature. That he is the one master of heaven and earth. And that he is also incredibly, relentlessly good. So what do we make of this? It should shake us a little, I think. See, I think that those of us who have grown up in the church have always had a sense of how important it is to believe the right things about God, to know the whole truth and nothing but the truth, to get our heads right and our thoughts established. For some of us, we've been told that the whole story of a relationship with God 
is about believing the right set of statements. But Abraham didn't know those set of statements. Abraham tells us that it's bigger than that. Abraham is a hero of the faith, not because of what he knows or what he thinks, but because of what he does. In the face of great uncertainty, Abraham packs his bags and moves to Canaan. In the face of terrible doubt, Abraham picks up a knife, commits what he does to God, and chooses to act according to God's call. And then he begins to understand. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. I think that we see this pattern playing itself out over and over again throughout the story of Scripture. You have Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's house, who was a murderer and a runaway, and who does not know, at first, anything about his ancestors' God. But he obeys a burning bush, and then eventually gives God's people the law. You have Rahab, a prostitute and a foreigner, who knows only that the Israelite's God is stronger than her own. Then, after offering aid to the Israelites, she becomes a part of God's people and an ancestor of Jesus. And then you have Peter, the disciple, impetuous Peter, who was so confused and got things so wrong that he fell into a stormy lake, denied Jesus three times, cut off a dude's ear, and got called Satan by Jesus. (laughs) But eventually, this guy, who continued to step out on faith, who kept going for it in the midst of his confusion, ends up being the rock upon which Jesus says he would build the church. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. For all of these characters, uncertainty is a given. They don't know what we know now. They don't have the full story. At first, they don't know the right things about God or about themselves or about what's going to happen next. But they choose to trust God with their actions. They step out on faith, and they give their allegiance to God by what they do. And in doing so, they come to understand at least a little bit of what God is like and of what he is up to. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So what about us? I would say that for us, uncertainty is also a given. If we're being honest with ourselves, there are a million reasons to doubt, a million voices in the dark. There's tsunamis, and there are earthquakes, there are car wrecks, and there's cancer, there are unanswered prayers, there are lost people, there are strange, disturbing stories in the Bible, and there are so many things we don't understand. When I was in high school, I had a teacher who tore apart my worldview. He taught me to question everything, to look at the world with a totally skeptical lens. When I left his class, I was sure of nothing. I wasn't sure if the universe meant anything, if real love was a real thing, if people had any purpose beyond reproduction of genetic material. And I definitely didn't know about God. I wasn't sure if he existed, and if he did, I sure as heck couldn't say that he was good. It took years for me to move out of that doubt. It got better in my senior year of high school, but then worse again my freshman year of college, and then better, and then worse. And honestly, I'm not sure that it will ever go away completely, and maybe it's not supposed to. What I have learned, though, is that in my moments of deepest doubt, what often got me through was making commitment to act as I thought that God was calling to, even when I wasn't sure he was there. In a lot of ways, for me, the greatest antidote to uncertainty has been working with people in poverty. If Jesus ever asked anything of us, I think it was to love the poor and the hurting and the left out. And when I've done that, even while doubting, i found a strange sort of peace that feels something like knowing Something like having my thoughts established. Out there on Franklin Street, I've heard from the mouths of very outwardly broken people 
stories that no matter how far away I feel from God at the moment, snap me straight back into an awareness of his presence everywhere around us. I have seen on this very street God's faithfulness acted out in small ways and big ways right in front of my eyes. And yes, sometimes working beside people in poverty is heartbreaking, but with them I have experienced and come to understand how very real love is, how real the soul is, and how much there has to be something more than what we can see here. I think this is why that proverb jumped out at me. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Like Matt said, it's a principle, not a promise, a guideline, and not a sure thing. But still, I think that in this verse, we have the beginnings of a cure for our confusion. A pathway that may not lead us out of the questions, but will at least lead us safely through them. To some extent, all of us are going to have to deal with doubt, with thoughts that are more shaky than they are established, because that is just the world we live in. We have no choice in that matter. But what we can choose is what we're going to do in the midst of our uncertainty. And if there is an organic connection between action and thought, between what we do and what we think, then maybe it makes sense that giving our allegiance to God with our works can bring some sort of clarity to our thoughts. Now, I'm not just saying that we should stop worrying about the questions and just try to be good people. No, I'm saying that we should lean into the questions by actively, aggressively committing ourselves to God with what we do, despite what we think. Maybe we'll find out that it is only in jumping off the cliff that we learn how strong our climbing ropes are. Maybe it is only in stepping out of the boat that we learn we can really walk on water. Or to put it another way, maybe the proof of the pudding really is in the eating. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Now, you probably noticed this is not actually a Bible. I feel bad that I did not bring a Bible because I only had one verse, but I did bring another book. Um, so this book is one, it's very long, and I haven't finished reading it yet. Uh, it's called The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoyevsky, who was a Russian and a Christian. Uh, but it has one of my favorite passages about dealing with doubt. In this passage... There's a monk who has just prayed over a woman's sick daughter and promised that she's going to make a full recovery. And the woman is thankful and she believes the monk, but then she reveals to him that she has struggled all her life with what she calls a lack of faith. It is crippling and it terrifies her. It's terrible, she tells him. What will give me back my faith? Though I believed only when I was a little child, mechanically, without thinking about anything, how? How can it be proved? How can it be proved? How can anyone be convinced? Oh, miserable me, it's devastating, devastating. No doubt it is devastating, the monk says. But one cannot prove anything here. But it is possible to be convinced. How? By what? By the experience of active love. Try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. And if you reach complete selflessness in the love of your neighbor, then undoubtedly you will believe, and no doubt will even be able to enter your soul. This has been tested. It is certain. And that is my prayer for all of us, that we may be so filled with active, living love that there is no space in our hearts for doubt to enter in and to stay. So, go now and commit your works to God that your thoughts might be established. Amen.